Father God, we ask that peace would come and that restoration would be granted in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of his Holy Spirit. And now as we turn to read your word together as your people, we ask that you would give us eyes that will see Jesus. Would you give us hearts that are soft to receive the truth of your word? Would you give us ears that are attentive to hear your word spoken to your church today? In the name of Jesus and for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. She hates it when I'm about to start preaching. So, sorry. If you want to uh, have a look at your service sheets, on the back we've got the uh, passage for this evening. Haggai chapter 2. It's actually the last bit in the whole book of Haggai. It's a tiny little book of, uh, in the Old Testament. So if you want to hold that just now, um, we'll read together. This is God's word. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. There was a recent uh, BBC series, I don't know if you caught it, it's on BBC Four, I think, called Utopia, three-part series. And it, it tracks the history of humanity, um, particularly over the last sort of four or five hundred years, to drive towards this concept of utopia. If you're unfamiliar with the term, utopia is a sort of uh, idealistic uh, realm that may or may not really exist, a, a society of perfection or near perfection, uh, where people live uh, in happiness and peace and equality, where suffering and injustice don't exist. That sums up much of what we understand by the term utopia. And this, this series on BBC4 goes to show that uh, there's been multiple efforts throughout the centuries to try and achieve a utopia, uh, whether it's through communist socialism, whether it's through the monastic religious lifestyle, uh, whether it's through aesthetic experiences such as music and art, whether it's even through the use of drugs to try and achieve some sort of perfected realm or state of experience. This series on TV shows that whilst there's been multiple efforts to try and reach utopia, that by and large, they've all been short-lived, they've all failed in their original vision, they've all turned in on themselves from their original goal of happiness and peace. And the point is, though, that I want to bring to you tonight is that every person, all of humanity, I would say, has a desire has a drive within them. Intuitive, intuitively, we know that there is something else. There is something greater. We don't always know where that comes from. We don't even necessarily always think it consciously. But the drive towards utopia goes to show that as a human race, we know there's something else out there, something greater. The Bible uh, presents a kind of utopia. And it gives actually 
a, a broad understanding as to where this drive comes from, this drive that there is something better out there, there's something greater ahead. But not only does the Bible give us a, a clear vision and a picture of that kind of reality, but it takes seriously the corruptive influences that we seem to carry within ourselves as well. Because every human effort to get to utopia has always collapsed in on itself. And the Bible shows us why that is. And so we come to this passage, which is really the last passage in this four-week study through the book of Haggai. And it kind of ends with this uh, hint towards utopia. Um, If you are new with us this evening, uh, you're very welcome again. Uh, But you, you come right at the end of the book of Haggai. And so let's just think for a few moments about what we have learned over the last few weeks. Uh, We have seen uh, that the people of God, the people of Judah, have been in exile in a foreign land for 40 or 50 years under the power of the Babylonians and then the Persian Empire after them. But under the Persians, they were allowed to come home, come back to the promised land, you know, to, to, to the realm there of Palestine and Jerusalem, the capital city. And they were allowed by the Persian leaders to rebuild the temple so that the worship of God could start again. It's part of the Persian foreign policy. And so we see uh, a few years before Haggai's prophecy, the people come back, they make a start on the work, but for one reason or another, the work to rebuild the temple that had been smashed to pieces itself came to a grinding halt. And so God sent the prophet Haggai to go and prophesy and to go and preach to the people so that they would be stirred again uh, to rebuild the temple. And so we saw in the first week of our study, the main reason why they hadn't built up until the time of Haggai was personal priorities. They were prioritizing their own personal comfort, their own houses over and above the house of God. And so we saw how that played out. Second week, then we saw another threat to the work was comparisons that crush. Remember that? They were looking back, those who had memory uh, of the good old days, even the stories, the kind of mythical stories of the the first temple before it got knocked to pieces. They were looking at their current situation and thought "This this is nothing compared to the good old days. And then last week we saw that this unholiness that undermines, this general uh, ceremonial uncleanness before God that meant that their work was not acceptable in his sight. And we saw how he gave himself to them so that they may be acceptable. All throughout, God has assured his people of his presence, of his protection, of his power, of his resources. They will never be in want. And so time and again, the prophet hammers the message home. And so God has been laying out, if you like, the blueprint for this new community, for this utopic vision, uh, if you like. What What would it look like? Well, just a summary of some of the things we've seen. It would be a place where God will take pleasure in it himself. It will be a place of great glory, nothing like what it was like in the old days. This will far surpass what you experienced in the past, says God. God's vision is a place where God lives. He sees a city of blessing. He sees the work of his people being fruitful and zealous. This kind of utopic biblical vision. And that's kind of where we're at. That's where we are now in our study. And we're just coming to this last section here. Uh, And I'm going to try and explain some things under two headings as we go through. Number one, I'm going to say God's Messiah will lead God's visionary community. Number two, 
we're going to see how God's people live in God's visionary community. All right? So God's Messiah, number one, will lead God's visionary community. This is an important part of the big picture. Uh, We cannot forget this bit, even though it's just a few fairly random verses at the end of the book of Haggai. Um, As we've we've just read, uh, God speaks through Haggai to this chap by the name of Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Judah. He's the closest thing they'll come to a king. Uh, He is in the uh, from the family of great King David. Uh, he is from that sort of uh, genealogy, if you like. And that's important. We'll see in a few moments. But this message gets spoken to Zerubbabel. And it says there in verse, uh, towards the end of verse, uh, middle of verse 21, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth, says God. We saw this terminology a couple of weeks ago where God is going to pick up, if you like, the nations and shake them so that the tribute, the, the, the resources will come to the temple. So he says it again here, I'm, I'm going to shake it up, but this time it's got a different emphasis. This time we see that God shaking will overthrow evil and powers that are against God and his people. And I'm going to deal with that, says God. I'm going to overthrow that. Kingdoms, nations, chariots, riders, all these symbols of power and authority and pressure. I'm going to shake it up, says God. But it's clear when you, when you read that, who's going to be doing the work? Who's going to be bringing the victory? It's not going to be Zerubbabel. It's going to be God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, says God. And you just get to stand while I use you to achieve what I want. So he makes this great promise. But then he sort of develops it a little bit as well in verse 23. Some weird things are said to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. He says, I'm going to make you my servant. And he says, I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. A signet ring. What's that all about? Signet ring uh, was and is sometimes in some cultures Uh, a mark of the authority of the king. The signet ring would have been given to um, uh, an embassy or someone representing the king in the form of a signet ring. And the person, the idea is, the person with the signet ring carries him or herself the authority and the power of the one who has given it. So Zerubbabel, being made a signet ring, carries the authority, the power of God. That's kind of interesting. But actually, to those who would have heard this promise spoken to Zerubbabel back in the day, that would have rung a few bells in the back of their minds. And the interesting thing is, and we see this in the book of Jeremiah, which is another prophet, chapter 22, verse 24, just before the people go into exile, you know, 40 or 50 years earlier, God speaks to the king and he says, Because you've been evil, because you've gone against my ways and followed idols and given yourself to them, I'm going to take you off of my finger. I'm going to rip you off like a signet ring and throw you away. No longer was that king a representative with the power and authority of God. And so it's very significant when we get to Zerubbabel many uh, decades later, that God is now saying, you, you son of David, I'm going to reinstate your authority I'm going to give you kingly power once again. It was torn off of my finger, but I'm going to put it back on again. I'm going to use you to achieve my purposes. 
And so great excitement, you can imagine, in the community when they heard this. Zerubbabel, ah, here's that signet ring once again. Here we go. The excitement when the people dreamt of this new community that God was forming again among them. And this is significant if you're at all familiar with the Old Testament, uh, the, the sort of the first two-thirds of the, of the, of the Bible. Uh, you maybe know of God giving promises to his people, uh, forming a covenant with them. And he gave a specific promise to David, the great King David. He said, on my throne, on your throne, there will always be an offspring. There will always be a son of yours on, on the throne. You will have an everlasting kingdom. And so when David died, it was passed on to his son. And when he died, it was passed on to his son. But the idea is that that promise of God, always you will have one of your sons on the throne, ruling over my people, was passed on and on and on. So you can imagine the tragedy when they got to the time just before the exile, when that signet ring was removed, the line of descent was cut in half. God saying, no longer are you fit for purpose. And yet, after this time away in exile, they come back. Zerubbabel once again is the the, the signet ring, the promises are reinstated. They were never away. And so we see this great excitement for Zerubbabel. But the interesting thing is, <clears throat> Haggai was one of the, actually one of the last books to be written, although it's sort of a few after it, but it's one of the last books to be written in the history of, of the Old Testament. And... Uh, for all the excitement and all this talk about signet rings and stuff, we never really hear anything more about Zerubbabel after this moment. He's given a big introduction and he's reinstated again with the signet ring and yet we never hear anything about him. Has God disappointed his people? Has, has he forgotten his promises after all? Was Haggai wrong? Did he hear God wrong? Well, as time goes on, we see the name of Zerubbabel appearing twice more in the Bible, both in the New Testament. And we see there, when the, the Messiah comes onto the scene, Jesus of Nazareth, in two of these sort of genealogies of these family trees, we see Zerubbabel there, named in the line of descent, traced from David through Zerubbabel, through to Jesus the Messiah. It seems to be according to the Bible that God's promises had not ended with Zerubbabel. They were carried on and completed and fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. You can read them for yourself. Now, why am I telling you all this stuff? Well, I, I think as, as a church, this is really helpful for us. It's really helpful because we can be in danger as a church and as people in general, actually, as history will show us, um, to read maybe the first two-thirds of Haggai, you know, the stirring, the people coming back, having God's spirit among them, we can be stirred into work. We can, we can go off and try and start rebuilding utopia, trying, trying to aim for that thing that God brings. And yet we miss this part. We'll make a total mess of it. Either if we're trying to build a new society that we think God wants, or whether it's our own individual version of utopia, if we miss this bit out, if we try and build our own form of utopia without God's Messiah leading us, then history shows and BBC shows that our efforts will fail. 
The Bible presents this, this glorious vision of a, a, a perfected realm and, and the reign of God, the kingdom of God, it's called. But we cannot achieve that peace and prosperity and goodness to all men. We cannot achieve that on our own. Various utopias may seize on this intrinsic desire we have to, to work towards it, to enter into perfection. And yet they fail to deal with the inner corruption that we all have. That's the reason why the system breaks down. It turns in on itself. That's the reason why utopian visions often turn towards totalitarian regimes. They start off being peace and well-being for all people. But then inevitably, it's only the privileged few that are blessed and the poor end up being oppressed always. As we saw in uh, that psalm we read together at the start of our prayers, the Bible shows that nations rise and fall. Our TV screens tell us that that is right. Nations come and go. People and systems operate without reference to God. But the Bible gives us a reason why systems of thought turn in on themselves. In fact, to use uh, the words of a, of a famous reformer called Martin Luther, <coughs> he said that the human heart, this is a Latin term, is incurvatus in sea. The human heart is incurvatus in sea, which means the human heart is turned in on itself. That's the way we are. That's what the catechism was just teaching us. By nature, our hearts turn in on themselves. We have this profound drive for a better place. And yet, because our hearts are turned in towards ourselves, we cannot reach it without God's Messiah. There is no philosophy or worldview that takes in this inner heart condition better than what the Bible teaches us here today. The Bible teaches that Jesus, heir to the throne of David, the chosen one, the Messiah one, the Bible teaches that he alone destroys that inner corruption on each of our hearts. Because in the gospel, in the good news that we've just been singing and reciting and reminding ourselves, Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection, takes our sinful flesh and our hearts that are turned in on themselves, he takes them upon himself, he takes it to the cross and he disarms the powers of sin and the devil and evil in his own body when he died and rose again on the third day. It was through the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the true son of David that all powers, all authorities, all human hearts can be set free. Jesus is the true fulfillment of that promise to Zerubbabel. He is the true son of David. Only through Jesus Christ does this biblical vision of a perfected state, the kingdom of God, only through him can it find fulfillment. God's Messiah will lead God's visionary community. We've seen how that can only happen in and through Jesus Christ. But let's think for a few moments now um, in the second half of this, uh, under the second heading, God's people and how they live in God's visionary community. How, how are we to live in light of what God is teaching here in the scripture and, and, and through many others too about the kingdom of God? How does this play out in our current experience? 
Do we create a vision of utopia for ourselves? <coughs> how, do we, how do we live in response to this? Well, it seems to be that there are two extremes that we are to avoid as a church. Two extremes. Number one is over-promising. And number two is under-promising. When it comes to understanding the Bible's vision of the future. According to the Gospels, when Jesus came and, and started his earthly ministry, he came saying this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. This, this, this utopic vision of God and his people, this perfected realm, this nature, this is here. It's near. It's so close that you can access it. But as the scriptures go on, we see that it's not here in its fullness, not here in its completion. And so we think of the kingdom of God as being present now and yet not yet. It's now and it's not yet. It's here and it's still to come. And so if we overpromise or underpromise, we can get into difficulty. If we go around, by the way, saying that the kingdom of God, this utopic vision that he has for us, is here already in its fullness, then we as a church, and me and my preaching, and you and your lives, will start overpromising. If we say this is it, if we say this is the kingdom of God in its completion, in its fullness right now, we end up producing people full of false hope. We end up producing disappointed converts who might be attracted to that kind of ideal. And yet, it doesn't square up with life in a fallen world. It doesn't square up with pain and suffering that we will all experience in some form or other. And so we as a church, if we say that the kingdom is here in its fullness right now, we'll just produce a bunch of disappointed converts who one day will walk away from the faith because it's not the riches and the amazement and the perfection that they were promised. We can make terrible mistakes by saying that the kingdom is here now, completely. We end up using force and manipulation to keep our people. But that's not the biblical understanding of the kingdom of God. So we shouldn't overpromise. But neither should we underpromise or underestimate what it means for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, to be among us. Because if we under-teach it and we say it's only in the future, it's nothing for us now, it's only a future realm that you get one day when you die and go and be with Jesus, then we end up producing a church full of people that are just simply disinterested in the world. Because all they're doing is waiting for this future realm. The kingdom of God is in the future and they have no interest in today's world. No interest in engaging with the poor. No interest in, 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 in finding justice for the oppressed. We just create a bunch of people who are just aloof and separated from the poor and needy. So we can't overpromise when it comes to this great vision that the Bible gives us, but we shouldn't underpromise as well. But thankfully, as we examine the texts of Scripture, we see two things. We see that the Bible is incredibly practical, and we see that the Bible is incredibly hopeful. So let's just think for a few moments about what those two fundamental things mean to us. The Bible, when it comes to the kingdom of God, is immensely practical. It's immensely practical because the kingdom of God is something that is present and we see most clearly through the local church. In the local church, we experience and know God with us. 
not just an idea, but an experience of him. In the local church, we see and enjoy his blessings, the kingdom blessings. We see his power at work in the church. We see miracles taking place. We see answers to prayer in the local church. We should see lives transformed. We see destructive powers, uh, destructive behaviors broken. We see peace and freedom and power given to people. When the kingdom of God is seen in the local church, you will see a bunch of people who work with zeal, who serve gladly, who demonstrate God's glory, who extend peace to the world, who seek justice, who minister to the poor. Hence our upcoming service with International Justice Mission. We see all of these things in and through the local church because as Jesus said, his kingdom has come. Christ died and rose and ascended and his spirit was poured out. Can you just imagine a church that knows it is part of the kingdom of God, that experiences that on a day-to-day basis? <coughs> How attractive a church like that would be. How transformational its community would be. How powerful its prayers would be. <clears throat> so a biblical understanding of the kingdom of God helps us to be incredibly practical. But number two, on top of that, it helps us to be incredibly hopeful. <clears throat> God says to his people uh, halfway through chapter two, that the future glory that I have prepared for you will exceed what is going on at the moment. Despite the trials and the hardships as God to his people, there is, not, there is another part, there is a not yet aspect to this great vision of the future. We have to be realistic, as I was hinting at a few moments ago. We live in a fallen world with fallen bodies that are decaying <coughs> physically, mentally, spiritually. And yet the Bible teaches us that we haven't arrived yet. We haven't got to this future perfected realm. That is still ahead of us. We have reason to be hopeful right now, but we have a great future ahead of us because the kingdom of heaven has not come in its fullness. And so when we see sin, when we see brokenness, when we experience a, a fragility of our bodies and those we love, as a church, we need not be despondent or devastated. We don't need to say that the kingdom of heaven has failed because it hasn't. We hang on to the promises of God that one day this reality will come. There is more to come. If you want to know more about the clear picture of this vision of a new community that God gives, <clears throat> you need to turn to the back, the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation, where it is, it is consumed with this vision of this new community that God provides through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. This gives shape to our ultimate reality. This satisfies what humanity is craving after. Let me read to you a few verses in closing of this great future that we have. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is God speaking, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will not need a lamp or the sun, <clears throat> for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is a summary phrase of a great vision that God gives his people. This is what we are aiming towards. And the only way you and I can access that and experience it and claim it for ourselves is through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for not leaving us in the dark about this great future that you have for us, the kingdom of God. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he provided access to it by giving himself in our place through his death on the cross. He rose from the grave on the third day and ascended to your right hand. And through faith in him, every man and woman and child can come into your kingdom and receive the present benefits of being a member of the kingdom of God. We thank you for this great vision and picture it gives us of this perfected reality that is ours, guaranteed through faith in Christ. Help us to become a church that is realistic that the kingdom of heaven is here. Help us to work towards justice all around the world. Help us to minister effectively to the poor. Help us to work and expect you to turn up in power and authority. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.